Well, good morning once again. Nice to see everybody. This morning during the, um, the prayer time, during our devotion at the beginning of the prayer time, I uh, read from Luke chapter 1 when the uh, angel Gabriel announced to Mary that uh, nothing will be impossible with God. And that's frankly how I view what happened on Friday when the Supreme Court announced its decision overturning Roe versus Wade. Nothing will be impossible with God. And uh, for as long as I've been a believer, in fact, frankly, longer than um, the time since I've been a believer, I've been a part of churches and groups praying for the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and uh, I didn't think it was going to happen. I, I didn't think I was going to see it in my lifetime, and boom, there it is. It's, it's, it's gone. It's history, at least Roe versus Wade. Um, but we know that the story of, a, of abortion is not done in the land, contrary to what so many people in the news media and in politics are deceiving people about. The Supreme Court did not just outlaw abortion. It simply went back to the original reading of the Constitution. Abortion's not there. And so they, they returned the um, responsibility to regulate abortion to, to the states. And people are losing their, their minds today. Um, I'd like to read for you a quote from Ben Shapiro, the editor-in-chief of the, um, the Daily Wire. He, he writes concerning Friday's decision. This means states are now free to regulate abortion. They are free to protect unborn human life. It means that hundreds of thousands of children who would have been killed in the womb will now live. This is a victory for human life. This is a victory for all human beings who are made in the image of God. And we should all say, amen. Absolutely. Um, don't fall into the trap that Christians are never allowed to talk about political things in church. Righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to any people. And we should rejoice that this Supreme Court decision was made. But once again, it's, it's not over with. Um, but even though I'd like to talk about this kind of thing all day long, uh, that's not what we're going to be doing this morning. We're, gonna, we're not going to have a Bible study on abortion. Um, instead, we're going to study from God's word how we as Christians should relate with the civil government in general. And it turns out that in God's providence, the Lord's Day after the dropping of this recent Supreme Court decision is the same Sunday that we're just up to Romans chapter 13 as we uh, continue to work our way week by week, verse by verse, through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome that the Holy Spirit had inspired. So that's actually what we're going to be doing. So the theme is the government and you from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. So let's just get right into it. The first thing that we'll see that Paul has to say here uh, relates to our fundamental duty 
to the government in the first half of verse one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. That's really straightforward. It's very plain. Let every person means there's no exception. There's no special category of people, churchgoers, Christians who are exempt. Every person. And then the command is be subject to the governing authorities. This is an important New Testament word that the ESV translators translate as be subject to. The, the Greek word is uh, hupotasso. And you'll recognize the first part of that. Uh, hupo, in English we would pronounce it hypo. It means under, like a hypodermic needle is a needle that goes under your skin, hypo or, or hupo. And then the second part of the word is tasso, and it means to, to arrange, to set in order. And so you put together hupo and tasso, and you have to place under in an orderly fashion. And it turns out in Greek, it's a military term. And when it's used that way in a military sense, it means to rank yourself under the authority of another. And it's used in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul instructs wives to hupatasso their husbands, to rank themselves under the authority of their husbands. And in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7, uh, church members are to hupatasso themselves under their leaders in the church. So uh, it's a pretty familiar New Testament term, but this time what's in focus is not husbands or church leaders, but what's in focus is the civil government. Christians, every person, are to rank ourselves under the authority of the governing authorities. Um, this isn't the only place that the writers of the New Testament give this particular command either. Titus chapter 3 and verse 1, the same writer, the Apostle Paul wrote, remind them to be submissive, same word, hupotasso, to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. And by the way, Paul means there that uh, Christians being submissive to the governing authorities is part of of every good work that we're supposed to be ready for. And then the Apostle Peter, the same man, by the way, who lopped off the, the ear uh, of that man in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was about to be arrested. Late, later on, when Peter came to know better as he was walking with the Lord for uh, a number of years, would write 1 Peter 2, Verses 13 and 14, be subject, same word, hupotasso, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by him. So that's our fundamental duty or responsibility to government, to be subject. Next, Paul addresses the origin of government in the second half of verse 1. Why is it 
that every person should be subject to the governing authorities. For, Paul goes on to explain, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So clearly, Paul is saying that God himself is the origin of government. Before there was any creation, before there were any human beings, before there was a fall, before there was any civil government or home government or church government, there was God with all authority. And uh, at the beginning, by the way, he had vested in Adam with the authority to, to rule, to have dominion over creation. And then after the fall, there was more of a reason for there to be uh, for, for there to be civil government because of how uh, sin had spread throughout all mankind and God saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every thought and intents of his heart was only evil continually. So no wonder that God had instituted civil government. We read about this earlier in Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans 9 and verse 17, where he quoted from Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16, where, where uh, Moses was speaking to Pharaoh. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God says to Pharaoh, I raised you up. And then uh, you'll recall maybe from the book of Daniel. Daniel writes in chapter 2 and verse 21 that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. So God not only instituted civil government in, in general as an institution, but he has also um, raised up individuals to wield that authority of the civil government, including Pharaoh, including Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel's time, and including, by the way, Nero. Nero was the emperor in Rome at the time that Paul wrote the book of Romans. And it turns out that Nero was going to go on and get worse in his wickedness and his totalitarianism and cruelty to people. But <clears throat> Paul plainly says here that Nero was the emperor in Rome because God had put him there. He existed in, in his place of authority because of God and his providence. So God is the origin of government, Government finds its origin in the providence and appointment of God himself. So now in the third place, if that's true, what are the implications of resisting the government? That's what Paul addresses next in verse 2. Notice, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. 
Did you hear a common word in that verse? I'm not sure, I, not, I don't remember what the other English translations say, but in the ESV, resist, resist, resist. Negatively, by the way. It's a caution against resisting the powers that be. And the reason is, as Paul says, that when we do resist the civil government, then we're resisting the origin, the author of civil government, God himself. We're resisting God's own authority. So literally, since God has appointed human rulers, the person who opposes them, resists them, is in a state of rebellion against the ordinance of God. That's what Paul says. But now we should pause, shouldn't we? Does this mean the, this caution from Paul in verse 2 and the, the, reality, uh, the reality of the origin of human government, does this mean that we can never resist any government mandate at all? Does this mean that human civil government has absolute power to command, to mandate, to rule. And as Christians, it's our duty to submit to them, to obey every single command without exception. And if we don't, then we're resisting God. Is that what Paul is saying? And is that what the Bible teaches? And, of course, the answer to those questions is no. That's not what the Bible teaches, and that's not even what Paul is saying in this context. Historically, by the way, um, in the Western world, what, what I just said to you uh, in terms of uh, our responsibility to absolutely obey the uh, authority of the civil magistrate that's been articulated in terms of the um, divine right of kings. You've heard of that, right? The divine right of kings, especially uh, in the English-speaking world. And the divine right of kings basically said, God put the king on the throne, and so whatever the king says, we have to obey with, with no exceptions. He has divine right basically to be a little God on the throne. And I don't believe that uh, that's what Paul is saying here. And that's certainly not what the rest of the Bible teaches. In fact, it turns out that in this passage itself, in Paul's words here in Romans 13, there, um, there are built-in limitations. So for example, what happens when the government itself resists the ordinance of God. Here, here we're being told to not resist the authorities because we don't want to resist what God has appointed. We don't want to resist God. What happens when the government, the civil government, the emperor, the king, the president, the governor, the mayor, whoever, 
What happens when the commands or mandates that the civil government itself issues are resisting the authority of God? What do we do then? Do we obey Caesar? Well, the Bible itself gives us some help here. Um, Look backwards to the book of Acts in chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, we find the account of two of the apostles, Peter and John, preaching the gospel and then getting in trouble with the law. Now, it wasn't the Roman governing authorities, but it was the Sanhedrin, and they exercised some degree of civil authority uh, within Jerusalem. And uh, notice what happens in the story here. So Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 18, we're going to cut into the middle of it. They're arrested. They're brought before the Sanhedrin. Verse 18, so they called them, the Sanhedrin did, the ruling council of the Jews, They called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Do you hear what Peter and John are saying? They're saying that this command that you've given to us to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, we cannot obey that command from you and be obedient to God at the same time. One of them has got to give because they're mutually exclusive, they're contradictory, and guess what? We're not going to obey you, we're going to obey God's command to us. And that's what we end up seeing in chapter 5 and verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And so, this is just one example of where followers of Jesus Christ, believers in the God of the Bible, when we're given a diametrical choice, of obeying the civil government or obeying God, then we must obey God rather than men. Not only are we allowed to obey God rather than men, to use the language of the apostles, we must obey God rather than men. And there are many other examples. There's the king of Egypt ordering the midwives in Egypt to murder the newborn babies of Hebrew mothers. There's the three Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's giant golden image in Daniel chapter 3. They, they disobeyed the order of the king. There's Daniel publicly praying to the God of the Bible rather than to to King Darius in Daniel chapter 6 and and more. When it comes down to a choice between obeying God 
and men, we must obey God every time. And that is not resisting God when we do that. And of course, our country has a rich tradition of this kind of resistance. We call it civil disobedience. Uh, It was articulated really eloquently by Henry David Thoreau in his essay uh, on the duty of civil disobedience that was published in 1849. And then that essay from Henry David Thoreau greatly influenced Dr. Martin Luther King, the leader of the American Civil Rights Movement. And in Dr. King's autobiography, he said that. Listen to Dr. Martin Luther King. I became convinced that non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. The teachings of Henry David Thoreau came alive in our civil rights movement. Indeed, they are more alive than ever before, whether expressed in a sit-in at lunch counters, a freedom ride into Mississippi, a peaceful protest in Albany, Georgia, a bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, These are outgrowths of Thoreau's insistence that evil must be resisted and that no moral man can patiently adjust to injustice. Amen to Martin Luther King. So I submit to you that based on uh, the total witness of the scripture and even Paul's own immediate context, There are times when we not only can, but must resist the governing authorities. Um, There's other instances, too, or or, um, other categories. Um, And just real briefly, we've mentioned situations where the civil magistrate will issue a mandate or command, specifically. But there's a whole idea of what's called sphere sovereignty. Sphere sovereignty. And that was articulated by the Dutch theologian and turns out prime minister for a period of time in the early 1900s, Abraham Kuyper. Now next week when the Hokemans are back in church, please tell them that I'm, I referenced a Dutch theologian, okay? Abraham Kuyper. Anyway, so he articulated this doctrine of sphere sovereignty, and that's the idea that of all of these different spheres of government that God has ordained, they all have their respective and limited spheres of authority. We're we're talking about the civil government. Civil government has its sphere of authority, sphere of sovereignty. There's also the family. There's also the church. And when those various uh, spheres of sovereignty cross circuits and overstep their bounds, then they're not acting in God's behalf and there needs to be pushback. So for for example, um, if the church would institute um, the death penalty, Perish the thought. It's happened, right? 
There, there have been plenty of people whom the Pope in Rome has ordered dead. But if, if the church would say, oh, this person has done wrong or this person's a heretic, they need to be put to death. That's violating this sphere of sovereignty because as we're going to see, God has given the civil government the power of the sword, not the church. And by the same token, God has not given the civil government the, the right or authority over ecclesiastical affairs. And so it's not up to the emperor or the king or the governor or even Dr. Fauci to say what's important in terms of the church even gathering to begin with or what, can, what we can do when the church gathers together. Well, thank you for your suggestion, but you don't have authority within the local church, et cetera, et cetera. Sphere of sovereignty, look it up. Nevertheless, these are implications of resisting the government. Um, and of course, we, we have to be careful. In order for our civil disobedience to be meaningful, to glorify God, to proceed from a good conscience, we, we can't just say all the time, oh, I'm practicing civil disobedience. Don't confuse civil disobedience with you just not getting your way. Don't confuse civil disobedience with you being on a different page politically than, than whoever is issuing these commands. No, we must be subject to the governing authorities even when we don't agree with them unless they require us to sin or they're out of bounds in terms of their sphere of sovereignty. All right, moving on. I, I could have a lot more to say on that point, but I won't. Number four, the role of government. So we're supposed to be subject to the government. God's the originator of government. We must not resist their lawful commands and laws. What's their role? Notice verses three and four. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That's the fundamental role of government. The fundamental role of the civil government as God's servant is to defend good conduct and punish bad conduct, the evildoer, even to the point of inflicting the death penalty on evildoers. So this is one passage, by the way, in the Bible that speaks to the, um, the morality, the justice of the death penalty. 
That's what the power of the sword is. The power of the sword is a, is a euphemism. It's a polite, soft way of referring to the death penalty because, frankly, the sword was used mainly to behead people by the civil magistrate in the Roman Empire. And then, of course, there's uh, Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, after the flood, when uh, God commands Noah, uh, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for God created mankind in his own image. So the reason why the death penalty is appropriate for murder is because murder is the destruction of the image of God in man. And the most just, the most righteous remedy for destroying the image of God in man is the death penalty. And to the extent that we don't carry out the death penalty, we actually minimize the value and holiness of the image of God. But notice how this responsibility of the government goes off the rails when there's not a righteous definition of good behavior and bad behavior. And such a definition is available to all because Romans chapter 2, God's written his law on the hearts even as, uh, as unbelievers. And so when the government, instead of defending good conduct and punishing bad conduct, basically punishes good conduct and rewards bad conduct, then disorder and mayhem and chaos and the city of Chicago happens. The uh, London Baptist Confession of 1689 says this in uh, first, the first paragraph of chapter 24 that deals with civil government. God, the supreme Lord and King of the whole world, has ordained civil authorities to be under him and over the people for his own glory and the public good. For this purpose, he has armed them with the power of the sword to defend and encourage those who do good and to punish evildoers. A Amen. All right, moving on now to our fifth point, and that is the proper motivation for subjection to the government. In verse 5. Paul writes there, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So here we have um, an, a repeat of the basic command in verse 1 to be subject to the governing authorities. Paul is repeating it for emphasis. We, we, we must have a submissive disposition towards the governing authorities. We must not be unruly. We must not be like people who lived in Israel in the days of the judges when, people, when everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. That's not consistent 
with the Christian faith. That's not consistent with someone who's been saved by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, who's given us a new heart and written his, uh, God's law in our minds and on our hearts. Remember, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Think of Christ's work of salvation as a rescue project, a rescue mission, in which the objective of that mission is to rescue us from being self-willed, living life our own way instead of God's way. We must be in, in subjection. And then Paul adds here in verse 5, it's not just for the same reasons that the ungodly would be in subjection. There's lots of reasons to be in subjection to the laws of the land. It, it could hurt me. I could get hurt. Lots of laws are meant just to protect me as well as somebody else. It could get expensive as I accumulate traffic tickets or whatever. Could tarnish my reputation. Uh, I could actually experience the wrath of God mediated through the wrath of the emperor and the sword of the civil magistrate. So I can't just follow through with the anger in my heart and put someone to death. Those are all reasons that unbelievers have, motivations that unbelievers have to be in subjection. But believers have the most important motivation, and it's our conscience. For the sake of conscience, we want to do what is right just because it's right. We want to do what it's right because it pleases God. We want to be subject to the governing authorities because God sees and God knows and God is pleased with faithful, willing, godly obedience. Then, verses 6 and 7, Paul gets a little bit personal. He talks about our money. Your money and government in verses 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So one application of being subject to the governing authorities is paying our taxes and not subjectively like has been popularized, paying your fair share, but simply obeying the laws of the land. It's a biblical thing to pay taxes. Jesus paid taxes. Uh, his famous saying, give to God the things that are God, uh, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. That all had to do with paying taxes because he was asked by Jewish religious leaders if it was right for believers 
to pay taxes to Caesar. And they were trying to trap Jesus in his words. You can read about that in Matthew 22, verses 15 through 22. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right to pay Caesar his taxes. That's why Caesar's inscription is on this coin. And then Peter helps us out here in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you'll turn there with me. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Peter was there, by the way, when uh, Jesus said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. This is what Peter wrote. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. We read that earlier. And what's their role? Just what Paul says in Romans 13. To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We, we, we should want to be like Paul and to uh, always take pains to have a clear conscience toward God and man. Peter says the same thing. Those Christians, they pick and choose whatever laws they want to obey. They're rebels. They're bad citizens. No, Peter says that we need to be obedient to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And he goes on to say in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And believe me, I thank God for the freedom that we enjoy as Americans. It's, it's unprecedented historically. And we are told in the Bible to um, stand fast, therefore, in the freedom for which Christ has made you free. Uh, don't be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. And that has to do with basically legalism, man-centered, uh, man-made additions to the law of God, things that are just external. But this is a good reminder from Peter that as, much, as uh, great of a blessing as freedom is, it's not everything. Freedom can be idolized. It can be treated as the ultimate thing. And so we should never use our freedom as an excuse to sin. And I can't resist, I have to use another political example here. Um, maybe it was last week or so, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, went to a, a drag queen event. And for those of you who uh, don't know, a few years ago, maybe you wouldn't have known. Now it's being pushed everywhere. So if you don't know what a drag queen is, maybe you're living under a rock the last year or so, but it's uh, it's basically men dressing as women, but not just men dressing as women. It's men dressing as uh, like prostitutes, as uh, immoral women. Those are drag queens, and that's being celebrated. And so Nancy Pelosi shows up to this event celebrating 
celebrating drag queens, and she says to this crowd of drag queens, you are what America is all about. And, and I just want you to know, no, it's not. If drag queens are what America is all about, we're in a lot of trouble. Well, Paul, uh, Peter says, that is not what liberty is all about. Using your liberty as a cloak for, um, as a cover-up for evil. Instead, live as servants of God. And then uh, 1 Peter 2.17, Peter concludes by saying, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And brothers and sisters, I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that most of you are not President Biden fans. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that. But we're commanded by God to honor President Biden. We're commanded by God in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2, to pray for President Biden, for uh, Governor Newsom, and others. If Christians in the days of Nero are called to honor the emperor, then there's no getting around that responsibility for us in uh, the year 2022. All right, so your money and government, we must pay our taxes. Um, I do believe it's good stewardship to know the tax laws or hire someone who does, uh, and so take advantage of legitimate tax laws to minimize the amount of taxes that we owe, but we shouldn't lie or break the law in doing so. That's the teaching of the Bible. That's our duty. All right. Well, I did modify the outline a little bit after Friday. Uh, so instead of limits of government, uh, this is just um, applications, and I, I just have three short ones. So number one, Bend over backward to be model citizens. Bend over backward to be model citizens. And I'm lifting this out of an article in Table Talk magazine from September 2008 called Civil Disobedience. And it, uh, online it doesn't have the author. But let me just read to you the, these couple of sentences. Our default position as Christians is to bend over backward to be a model citizen. But when the demands of God's kingdom directly contradict the demands of the kingdom of men, the mandates of our heavenly citizen, citizenship must win. Your allegiance belongs ultimately to Christ, not to the state. Number two, pray. I mentioned 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. Pray for our government leaders. Paul wrote there, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That is God's goal for us 
as believers. And that's what we should pray for, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, not be revolutionaries, not be terrorists, not be thugs, but that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then finally, three in terms of applications. Understand your role as a citizen in our republic. Obviously, we don't have an emperor. We don't have a king. In our system of government, in our constitutional democracy, there's a constitution, but then there's the consent of the governed. And so basically, in our constitutional democracy, there's the, the law of the land, which is king, lex rex. That's what that means. The law is king. But then there are the voters. Voters can vote the bums out of office. Voters can vote righteous men and women, wise men and women into positions of leadership in the civil government. And we have the opportunity to do that again this November. You have a role to play in government. Use your political voice and your vote to the glory of God. And along those lines of understanding your role, let me just add, understand our Constitution. I'm amazed uh, listening to the, the national uh, tantrum that's playing out before us at the profound constitutional ignorance on the part of the American people, I'm sorry to say. The Constitution is a pretty simple document. I, I read it last night. It's a really simple um, document, and it's a pretty simple form of government. It's meant to be limited. It's meant to set up separate but equal forms of government because the Founding Fathers didn't trust the heart of man. Uh, they, they knew that if you give someone power, the corruption of the human heart is going to want to corrupt that human power. Absolute, or power corrupts absolutely, and absolute power corrupts. Well, I just messed that all up, but you, you get the idea. That's why our government is the way that it is. And so, for example, when it comes to this, the Supreme Court, I'm appalled and outraged that there have been protesters for weeks now who uh, found out the ad home addresses of the justices of the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, and that was leaked, that was publicized through members of the political left, and they've been protesting in front of the justices' homes, and I'm also outraged that there was one individual who attempted to murder Judge Kavanaugh. And I'm outraged that the mainstream media isn't even talking about that. But that represents evil, but it also represents ignorance. 
the Supreme Court is supposed to be an independent, non-political arbiter of what the Constitution and the laws say. They're not supposed to say, this is what should be true. This is what should be legal or uh, illegal in, the, in uh, the country. All they're allowed to do by the Constitution is to say, this is what the Constitution says, this is what the law already says, and this law that's, that we're evaluating is either inbounds or out of bounds. That's all that they said with this recent decision. They did not outlaw the practice of abortion. They don't have the prerogative to. But the Supreme Court in 1973 also didn't have the prerogative to legalize abortion because it's not in the Constitution or federal law. In fact, if you read that original uh, decision in 1973, it sounds like a piece of legislation where they're coming up with viability and the progress of um, human gestation and all that. That's not for a judge to legislate. That is for legislatures to legislate. And that's all that this um, decision did. And then it returned the matter of abortion to the people's elected representatives. So I'm not a legal scholar, but I believe every one of us with more than a sixth grade education should be able to understand what I just said and understand what your role is uh, as a citizen in America because we voters, we the people, have a share in the civil magistrate, right? We do. So use it to the glory of God uh, in knowledge. All right. Well, let's commit ourselves to the Lord. Let, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for every institution that you have ordained. And we thank you for the institution of civil government. And thank you because of our civil government, we have been able to live in, uh, in peace and safety, by and large, for many, many years. And we've been allowed as your people to worship you according to our own consciences. Um, so we do pray for ourselves, Lord, that we would have a heart of obedience to our civil government, that we would give honor to whom honor is due. And we do pray once again for your blessing upon our nation. May we indeed know the difference between good and evil. And may our government reward good behavior and punish bad behavior. And we pray that you would continue to have your hand of blessing in an extraordinary way upon the United States of America. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.